Good morning, everyone. I may have uh, recognised that passage from last week's reading. Uh, it was one that uh, Stuart mentioned in his talk. I thought I'd just take that up with you. I'm not going to preach the same sermon that Stuart preached, although I've done that before. I once spoke at a church where they invited me to speak, and I gave a talk on a passage, and they said, that was a lovely talk, very similar to the one that we had last week, which is on the same passage. Uh, I didn't like that. I remember a minister saying to me once that he preached a sermon twice, uh, one week and then the next week the same sermon. And they said, why did you do that? And he said, well, when they get it the first time, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop preaching it. So, yeah, I'm not going to preach this next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word this morning. Uh, please enable us, give us uh, enlightened eyes and ears to hear. Amen. You might want to open your Bibles or keep them open to uh, Luke chapter 9. And verse 28, uh, I haven't got any fancy overheads this morning or uh, PowerPoints. That's all you're going to get. So this is an old school sermon, uh, me and the Bible. Have you ever had one of those experiences you, you wish wouldn't stop? It could be as simple as um, uh, evening light on a gum tree and with uh, storm clouds behind it. I think that's beautiful. I just wish that experience would stay there. It could have been uh, walking or with the family or running along a, a beach at sunset and uh, you can't tell where the water finishes and the sand starts and it's all just that purpley pink glow. You think, I wish this would last. It's great. I remember sitting on a cliff up in um, Megalong Valley overlooking Narrow Neck and watching the mist roll over Narrow Neck and thinking, wow, God, this is great. Do it again. Just keep it going. It might be... A, bit more than that. It could, could have been a shared experience. could have been your family at Christmas. Everybody actually turned up for once. All the children were there and none of them fought. And all the grandchildren behaved themselves. Wow, you could keep that going for a while. You may have been camping with friends and thought, this is a great experience. I'd just love to, to keep this moment. Whatever it is, you want to capture the experience. Uh, you, you want to sit in the moment and make it last just that little bit longer. That's certainly how Peter's feeling on this mountaintop that day, as Lorraine just read for us. He has a glimpse of Jesus in all his glory, and he says, Jesus, can we keep it just like this? We don't want to go back down. We like it the way it is. Ever felt like Peter with a, a spiritual experience, perhaps? Maybe you've been on a beach mission team, it's just been really exciting being on that team together and you, you don't want that, that mission time to end or a, or a church camp or you might have been to a convention or a conference and the teaching's really exciting and uh, the fellowship's great and you just want it to continue. But the problem is those mountaintop experiences don't last, do they? Because you've always got to come back down the mountain. The light fades, the sun sets, the family goes home You've got to pack up from the camping trip and reality sets in. Well, let's have a look at Jesus' own experience and what that's all about. Let me read to you from chapter 9, just a couple of verses from verse 28. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. <clears throat> this episode is so rare that some commentators actually think it's a misplaced resurrection story. 
but it actually happened after Jesus' crucifixion and somehow sort of wandered back into the middle of Luke's gospel. Um, well, let's just check that out and see if that makes sense. Uh, it's called a transfiguration. You can see the title there in your Bibles. Uh, it's just a, a glimpse of God in his glory. That's all it is. <clears throat> a glimpse of God in, in reality. We, we get a, a partial glimpse of God, but this is God showing himself to us in his glory. Its aim here is to give assurance, particularly to Peter, John and James, that Jesus' suffering and death is not an accident. It's not the end of the story. There's, there's hope to come. They're going to go through some dark passages together, but there's hope at the end of the story. There's resurrection glory. This passage hasn't floated in from somewhere else. It fits in very well with what's just gone on before it. If you go back to verse 18, uh, the one that, again, Lorraine mentioned, uh, Peter's confession of Christ, let's read a bit there. <clears throat> Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, the one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. In other words, Peter's saying, you are the promised Messiah. It's the right answer. You're, you're the king that the Old Testament speaks about in the line of David that's coming to bring in a new kingdom and get rid of our enemies. Good answer, Peter. You're dead right. But now Jesus begins to do something that startles them. He starts to define his messiahship in terms of another Old Testament figure, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In a Jewish mind, you had the messiah and you had the suffering servant and they were different characters. But in Jesus, he says, now they'll merge. I'm going to be a messiah, but in a way that you never realised. You know, as I read of Jesus, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So Jesus marries these two. And uh, as we can see in verse 22 of this particular chapter again, after Jesus had made this statement, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus defines his Messiahship in terms of suffering. It's not always going to be up on the mountain. It's going to be down times before that glory comes again. Well, it fits into the context of the gospel. Does it fit into the context of the Bible? Are there any other events like this? Well, yeah, Darren read one for us. Let's go back to Exodus for a minute. And again, if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus 19, and we'll work our way through a little bit of Exodus. Uh, in Exodus 19, the people of God have uh, left Egypt, and after some much time of grumbling and groaning and uh, sort of Moses intervening and praying to God, they eventually get to uh, Mount Sinai, the promised uh, mountain of God. And Moses is going to go up and receive the Ten Commandments. And we read there in, in chapter 19 that uh, this is a mountain where Moses goes up and God comes down and they'll meet. I want to take you a little bit farther on to chapter 24. Now, if you have a look at verse 15 in chapter 24. So this describes Moses' experience. Chapter 15, sorry, uh, verse 15, chapter 24. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. 
and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And we know that uh, when he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing. He has to wear a veil because he's been in the glory of the Lord. So Moses has an experience of meeting God on a mountain. If you want to jump over to uh, a little bit further in the Old Testament, we're going to go to 1 Kings 19. So 1 Kings comes before 2 Kings. Chapter 19. And this is a story of Elijah's visit to a mountain. Now, Elijah actually has two visits to two mountains. Uh, One's on Mount Carmel, where he takes on uh, Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Remember, he challenges uh, the prophets to a contest of who can burn the bull, and uh, the prophets of Baal pray and cut themselves and sing songs, and nothing happens. And then Elijah actually gets uh, his servants to pour water over the, the animal, and he prays to God, and fire consumes it. There had been a drought for a while and the drought breaks and Ahab rides his chariot back to Jerusalem. Elijah runs in front. The rain's pouring down. Elijah feels great. Jezebel the queen hears about what Elijah's done and says, surely by this time tomorrow you're going to be as dead as my prophets. Elijah loses heart and he runs. He wants to commit suicide. He wants to die. God feeds him, raises him up and he walks a bit further on. Where does he go? Well, let's have a look. Chapter 19, and uh, we'll pick it up at verse 8. So Elijah got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, Mount Sinai, same mountain as Moses. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And you know the story, but let me read it to you. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord and the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah stands in the presence of the glory of God and he pulls a veil over his face. Theologians call this meeting with God a theophany, where God shows his glory, reveals his glory. And back in Luke, this is exactly what's happening here. Jesus is being unveiled and the glory shines through. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. He takes Peter, James and John with him, which he's he's done on a couple of occasions, hasn't he? They're the ones that were with him when he healed that little girl, uh, Jairus' daughter. They were in the room, they saw it. They're the ones who are especially taken in the Garden of Gethsemane just a little bit further when Jesus prays again that uh, this cup might be lifted from him. If they'd known their Old Testament well, they would have realised what was going on here. They would have known about Elijah 
and about Moses and their um, experiences with God. But what they see is like a bride on her wedding day. Her appearance is altered. I don't mean to be rude, ladies, but I've taken enough weddings to know that when I have a rehearsal and then when I have the wedding the next day, I sometimes think I'm not going to be marrying the same person. I just don't recognise the bride after she's all dressed up. And here it's Jesus, the veil's lifted, and they don't recognise him. It's just such a phenomenal experience. It's a snapshot of the future. It's a glimpse of heaven for them. It's an image of the resurrected Jesus. It's a vision that's seared into their minds, uh, reminding them of future glory despite the difficulties that are going to come. But they're not alone on this mountain, are they? Let's read on. Verse 30, chapter 9. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. Moses, Elijah... They've just had their own experiences, haven't they, on the mountain with God? And here they are speaking of his departure. What's that? It's his exodus. It's his death. They're encouraging Jesus not to give up, not to falter at the last hurdle. Now, you might think it a bit strange that the Son of God needs encouragement to keep on going. But you remember there's a couple of times in the New Testament where Jesus is encouraged to keep on going. Because the temptation for him to take another path is incredibly real. Satan attacks him, doesn't he, in the wilderness. When he's physically and spiritually exhausted, Satan tries to deviate his course, to get him to take another route. And just before this experience on the mountaintop, you remember, as we heard before, uh, Jesus takes Peter aside and and rebukes him. Because Peter says to Jesus, this can't be. But Jesus says, yes, it is. This is the way it's going to be. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Mark records Jesus' response. Jesus actually is very firm. He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, Peter, Satan is using you to tempt me to go another direction. So Jesus needs encouragement. And he gets it from Moses and Elijah. Their ministries, you see, are incomplete unless Jesus completes his and he dies for the sins of the world and makes forgiveness possible. Even Peter's statement in verse 33 where he wants to stay there and build the shelters is, again, another subtle temptation, isn't it, for Jesus just to stay where he is and not go through the pain and the suffering that he has to endure. But Satan doesn't give up. And just as Peter's laying plans to build this shelter, a voice booms out of the cloud. And it's God's voice. And it reminds them of Jesus' destiny. While he was speaking, verse 34, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Now in the Old Testament, a cloud stood for two things. It stood for protection and it stood for God's presence and leadership. Remember as the people were leaving Egypt and they came down to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is chasing after them, what stood between the army and Moses before he crossed the sea was the cloud that came down. 
And so the Egyptians couldn't get through the cloud. And once they got through the Red Sea and out the other side as God's people and they moved towards the promised land, how did they know the way? A pillar of cloud led them. And they followed the cloud to uh, Mount Sinai. Both Moses and Elijah met with God in his clouded glory on the mountain. And they were invigorated to pursue their own missions. And it's the same for Jesus. At his baptism, a, a voice again had boomed from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that same voice says, this is my son, listen to him. Peter, James and John, listen to him. Listen to the words he spoke to you about his path of suffering. Don't forget it. I don't know if you've been watching the cricket. I, I mean, you can watch, watch the Big Bash every night if you want to. I know Mark does, or he actually goes to the games, doesn't he? But I'm thinking about the real cricket, the, uh, the test matches. And uh, after the game, often they interview the captains. And Steve Smith always seems to have the same thing to say. He says, despite what the opposition does and how they plan their tactics, we've got a game plan that we're going to follow. If we follow the game plan, we know we're going to get it right. I coached an under-16 boys team once in cricket. Uh, they'd lost every game the year before, so we put a game plan together. They weren't going to bowl short, and they were going to play their strokes rather than try and bash every ball. And it worked. We got ourselves to the final. And being it, strong boys, the age of 15, when the final arrived, the game plan went out the window. They thought they could bowl short and they could hit every ball. We lost by a trillion. And I think they realised that as they came off the field, they had their heads down, they realised we should have followed the game plan. And here Jesus is saying, here's the game plan. I'm going to follow what God says. I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn. When the cloud lifts, who's left? Well, only the disciples and Jesus. Moses and Elijah have gone. Uh, and again, when they come down the mountain, they're immediately confronted by Satan's power. It's not like that when they come down, everything's sort of rosy for a little while. If you have a look, uh, verse 37, as soon as they come down the mountain, the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met with him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. This is reality, isn't it? The disciples are powerless to do anything and this child is in convulsions. Well, Jesus heals the boy and straight after that he says these words. Verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what he meant. Jesus again reiterates, the path to glory is through suffering and pain. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talks to the people just before he dies and he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Listen to him. He didn't know who he was talking about. He didn't realise it was Jesus. But we do. 
If we are his, then we have the marks that characterise Jesus' life. As a church community, we have the marks that characterise the life of Christ. We don't like pain. We don't like suffering. In fact, if you had a survey of our community, I think the one thing that people don't like the most is pain and suffering. What they want is a happy, free life. Well, they can do as they like and feel happy about it. <coughs> one of the big questions when people say they don't believe in God is the question about how can you believe in a loving God who lets bad things happen to good people? Even Christians would love to have a pain-free life. Sometimes we just want to jump from mountain to mountain to mountain. We never want to go down to the depths. We never want to go down to the valley of the shadow. But that's where we find God moving with us. Christians to follow the path of Jesus means we'll experience pain and suffering along the way. Just after the New Testament was written, Christians were flourishing in the areas where Paul administered especially in the area of Turkey. There were Christians in the towns and in, 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 the, in the, the major centres and, and the country villages. Christianity was actually challenging uh, the Roman, uh, Roman Empire and its values and its, its, its dealings with the way uh, people lived. Uh, the emperor sent Pliny the Younger to go there as governor to uh, sort of sort things out and oversee the problem. Uh, Pliny went and he uh, executed lots of Christians. He'd say to them, deny Christ and offer a sacrifice to this God. And when they didn't, they were executed. As Pliny continued to do this and more and more Christians were executed, he eventually wrote to the emperor and he wrote these words about the Christians. And he said this, the sum total of the guilt amounted to no more than this. They met regularly before dawn on a fixed day of the week. They chanted verses among themselves in the honour of Christ, as if to a God, and also they bound themselves by oath, not for any criminal purposes, but to abstain from theft, robbery and adultery, and to commit no breach of trust. That's why they were executed. We live in a fallen world, don't we? Things happen to us that just don't seem fair or right. Christian children get sick just as much as other kids. Christians aren't exempt from car crashes and family breakdowns and cancers and untimely deaths. I never expected my brother to drown as he came back from Beach Mission one year, about 42 years ago. He was 22. He's just starting out in life. He's just completed a PhD and he was ready to start the university. And he drowned doing something that he loved in, in service of God. It didn't make sense. I didn't expect my marriage to unravel after 26 years. But it did. We live in a fallen world. We don't always have the mountaintop experiences. We often have to make decisions which will not be pain-free. What to do with our elderly parents? What to do with rebellious children? How can we be ethical at work when everyone else isn't? How can we keep on being Christians like the ones that Pliny wrote about? We've just been through another Olympic year. And I think it finally we've, we've finished praising our athletes for the achievements that they, they made. We've finished celebrating the winners. We give glory to the powerful and the successful. To follow Jesus, the glory arises from faith and obedience and enduring suffering. This episode of the Transfiguration gives us a glimpse of glory. It gives us a hope. It's just a picture. It's just a snapshot. 
it's there and it's gone, but it gives us that vision of what's to come for us. It's a taste. Let's not lose the vision, especially during tough times. Press on. Don't give up. Let me finish with the words of Paul as he writes to a growing young church in Philippi. And he has this to say to them, and I think they're wonderful words. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold for me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Amen.